trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is a place where wrong thinkers can gather from everywhere, far and near, and revel in wrong think, find courage, find camaraderie. To that end, I welcome my friend Eric Peters from epautos.com back to the show. Eric, great to have you on board. I trust you had a great Christmas. I did, and I'm standing here looking with great trepidation at the ducks in my backyard who are advancing on the house, and you stand a, a greater threat to me than the, the moronic con virus. Yeah, it's, let's, you know, I, I kind of want to do a little bit of a retrospective since we're, we're coming to the end of the year. We've got a new year ahead sure. of us, but um, something that is helping me feel a little bit encouraged is it appears that the, uh, the Omicron narrative... Remember how everything was going to have to lock down again? It seems to be coming apart like a soup sandwich. And I'm grateful for that, even though we're not out of danger just yet. Well, I am, too. But on the other hand, I'm also somewhat alarmed by the way it's being presented, which, of course, is grotesquely inaccurate. Again, I think the total number of people who uh, supposedly have died from the Omicron uh, in the United States is less than 10. I don't think it's even five. Um, and meanwhile, juxtapose that against the thousands who have been uh, who have been killed by the vaccines. And I put that in air fingers quotes to emphasize the fact that um, they don't immunize you from anything. <laughs> at best, at best, they reduce the symptoms of the sickness that you're probably still going to get. And it's astonishing to me that that doesn't click in more people's minds, or maybe it does, and it's just not being reported, which is important, I think, and bears on our, our discussion here that we should not take our view of the world from what CNN is purveying to us. Um, they want us to view the world in this dark and ominous way, when in fact uh, it's nothing like that out there in the real world. No, and, and uh, I think that we have seen, if, if, I could, if someone asked me, okay, what's the, what's the best thing that happened in 2021? Um, first on my list would be, well, the people who refused to be coerced into taking a uh, you know, biomedical uh, injection they they have clearly come fully awake. The other good news is there's a lot of people in the center, many of whom took the vaccination, who have likewise started to wake up and realize, wait a minute, this was supposed to give me my life back. But we're back to, uh, you know, <clears throat> passports and masking and, you know, segregation again. It didn't really change anything. And they're starting to see the light. I think that we owe a tremendous debt of gratitude to the portion of a population that stood fast and was hesitant and waited to see what would happen with these jabs before allowing themselves to be injected with a substance um, of unknown provenance made by companies that have immunized themselves from any liability. Because of them, we have a control group. We have millions of people who are perfectly healthy who haven't been jabbed, uh, juxtaposed with millions of people who were jabbed and who are not healthy now. The hospitals all over the world are being filled up with people who were jabbed and who thought that they were going to be immunized against this, uh, this sickness, which now they're continuing to get, and in many cases are getting it worse. And that's a very interesting thing. And it's wonderful that we have that because thanks to the orange man and thanks to all of the other people, they pushed these vaccines on the populace at warp speed without any testing. So nobody really knew what was going to happen before they were pushed into getting the jab. Well, now we can see what's happening. And again, 
thank God that a third to half of the population simply refused to do, do this because now the evidence is abounding all around us. Yeah, and I, I have to ask you this, Eric. Um, do, do you feel encouraged in the sense that uh, even though the, the narrative is falling apart, um, does this does this put us in a, in a place of, of even greater risk? Because I, I'm sure there is a reckoning coming for the people, the authoritarians who forced all of this on mm-hmm. us. They're trying to deny it. I know they're looking for wiggle room. What's your take on uh, the prospect of them uh, doing something desperate? Oh, I think it's nearly 100% because... If this thing uh, does fall apart, there's going to be a call for accountability. Um, you know, people like Fauci, people like the Orange Man, all of the people who have been associated with pushing this stuff on people who are responsible for instilling mass panic in, in the populace, who have destroyed God knows how many lives as well as God knows how many businesses, uh, there's going to be hell to pay. And the people uh, who, have, who are responsible for that know that they're responsible for it. And they will do anything, I think, that they can do to prevent themselves from being held accountable. So look out. It could, it could be a very interesting next several months. You know, um, I have a daughter who lives in Germany, and uh, even her Christmas pictures, I was really, I'm, I'm grateful to see Christmas pictures of my granddaughter and, uh, you know, my, my daughter and her family there. But it was crazy. Santa Claus is wearing an N95 mask, so is my daughter, mm-hmm. so is her husband. The, the daughter, my, or our granddaughter, rather, was the only unmasked individual in the photo, and that's only because she's under two years old. If she was two years old, mandatory, you put the mask on. Mm -hmm. What they have done is nothing shy of criminal. They have instilled a mental illness in vast swaths of the population, particularly children, which is the most loathsome aspect of all of this, in my opinion, because kids don't have the context. You know, they were... They were told by the authority figures around them that they look to for guidance, that you have to be terrified of this virus that's out there. And if you don't wear this mask, you're going to be responsible for killing grandma. And imagine the psychological damage that has done to an entire generation of kids. And somebody needs to be held responsible for that. Yeah, and I'm looking even at the the psychological damage that's been done to a lot of adults. Um, we we got to we attended several super spreader events over you know the holiday weekend, and mm-hmm. it's it's very clear that family members at every part of life are struggling psychologically to deal with what has been dealt to us. Well, sure, they've been caught in an abusive relationship. If you look into this, it's really interesting. Look into uh, domestic violence. Look into all of these dysfunctional relationships involving a domineering, controlling person who psychologically and emotionally abuses his victim. And by every metric that defines that kind of thing, that's what the population has been subjected to. Isolation, blaming, a constantly shifting narrative. Uh, so that, that to keep the person in a constant state of anxiety, trepidation, wondering what's next, not being able to to deal with a specific problem at a specific time because there's a new problem you've got to deal with. You know, this is what we're talking about. And if the things that have been going on now for the past two years had been done in any other prior context before, people would have seen it. If you had seen, for example, parents putting masks on kids three years ago and, and teaching them to be terrified of everything, it would have been an open and shut case of child abuse and the kids would have been taken away from that kind of person. Very true. 
And and as disturbing as it is for the way politicians have acted out, I kind of expect people involved in politics to lean towards being power seekers and opportunists. The disturbing part to me is the number of people out there, uh, the Karens, if you will, who have mm-hmm. uh, found that, uh, oh, I can, I can mistreat other people and I can appear righteous while I'm doing so. And they love it. They do love it. And it's alarming. And it's also illustrative. You know, you, you begin to understand what went on in the past in other countries. And most Americans think, oh, that could never happen here. But we've had a case study uh, in living color of just exactly how it happens. Uh, there are more dangerous people, ordinary people out there. What, what Hannah Arendt, the, the writer who, who did a lot of uh, dissecting of Nazi Germany, called the banality of evil, meaning you take an average person who has got uh, a sense of powerless, perhaps, and who has a grudge for whatever reason, and you give them a little authority, give them a little power over other people, and see what they'll do. And often what they'll do is something that you couldn't have imagined you'd ever see being done by people, and yet they will do it. Yep. And I guess, you know, this is one of the things I've appreciated about you, um, is you have have been one of the strongest voices standing up against, you know, the... the, um, what do you call them, the Gesundheitsführers? <laughs> but, the Gesundheitsführers, but, yeah, but you right. haven't turned into one yourself, and, and I think there's, that's the great cautionary tale is any one of us could do this. It's, it's one thing to stand up for what's right, but it, it's, a, it's also essential that we stand up in, in a productive way and, and don't become what we're trying to battle. Well, precisely. Uh, I'm a libertarian, and because I am a libertarian, I believe that each of us is endowed uh, with the right to make choices for ourselves, to not be told what to do, uh, to not be pressured to do something by somebody else. Down that road lies all kinds of bad things. And it's true that an individual making a choice may make a bad choice, but usually it's a far worse scenario when you've got one individual decreeing no choices for everybody. Now, we're coming up fast on our break, but in the next segment, I would like to expand on your last statement about, um, you know, how we we limit choices for everybody. And particularly, Mm -hmm. I want to spend some time talking about EVs. Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) I I know you just published a recent article about, you know, what it's like to own an EV. And um, but I I get the feeling we are being shoehorned into this um, for reasons other than simply saving Mother Earth. Have you noticed this? Yes. <laughs> it's, it's beginning <laughs> to sink in. And, and thankfully, a lot of this has been because you've been one of the consistent voices on it, but um, it, it's, it's very clear. We're, we're headed in a direction not of our own choosing. Stand by. Yep. We will continue our conversation with Eric Peters from epautos.com. There is a link in the show notes. You'll find them at thebrianheidshow.com. And we'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. I would encourage you to go to his website. Don't just read the articles, though. Read the comments. Man, he's got some sharp readers who have some great insights to add. And Eric, I noticed one of your uh, mm-hmm. one of your recent articles was "Life with an EV," mm-hmm. and it's it slowly dawned on me that you know, like it or not, the internal combustion engine is uh, it looks like it's it's going to be phased out at some point. 
well, it already is practically. If you've looked around at what's available in the marketplace, the engines are getting smaller and smaller to the point of near non-existence. I recently uh, test drove one with a one point, what was it, 1.2 liter three-cylinder engine. It's hardly an engine. I've got a motorcycle with a bigger engine than that. And it's all being done artificially via the government, which is imposing um, a de facto ban on internal combustion via these gas mileage mandates and also, as they're put, emissions mandates, which really have nothing to do with emissions, as most people understand that word. Um, it's been very subtly altered to mean something else, kind of like vaccines. It used to mean things that caused smog, things that made the air dirty, made you cough. Now it means carbon dioxide, which has absolutely nothing, of course, to do with smog or people's health, but which is claimed is going to turn the climate into a catastrophe and we're all going to die by people who tend to buy beachfront property and uh, big palaces <laughs> on Martha's Vineyard. <laughs> yeah, how about that? And, and you know, the, the way that our energy sector is currently being gutted, I mean, I still can't get over the fact that the one of the very first acts that President Biden undertook upon taking office was to stop one of the key pipelines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they have to do that because they have to eliminate um, competition with the electric vehicle uh, because the electric vehicle cannot compete outside of a very few small niches such as, uh, you know, short route, low speed, inner city kinds of uh, kinds of routes where, you know, there an electric vehicle might make sense. But for most people, particularly in America, who have to cover significant distances and who like to be able to just go somewhere on the spur of the moment and not have to plan around recharging, it's really problematic. And that leaves aside the question of the cost. Electric vehicles are just incredibly expensive. Um, to give you some sense of that, a Nissan Leaf, which is essentially equivalent to something like a Nissan Versa in terms of its physical size and, and its capacity, it's a small car, um, those things sell for about $35,000. And you can pick up the non-electric Nissan Versa for about 15. So essentially, uh, you're going to pay twice as much for a car that can go half as far, and it just would never sell on the merits. And so, therefore, they have to eliminate the alternatives to the electric car, and they're doing that through regulations and through tying off the supply of gas and oil. Yeah, you've, you have uh, you have definitely made me very cautious about uh, you know the wonder of the electric vehicle. Look, I admire my friend's Tesla. I love to go for a ride because. He, he loves to, to show me what a jackrabbit start really feels like. And, and it's, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool to experience. However, the idea of, of being, you know, I look at like, for instance, the tornadoes that came through, was it Kentucky here just a couple of weeks back? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when the power lines are down and all you have to get around in are electric vehicles, uh, you know, does that not present a bit of a problem? Sure it does. And there's something else I'd like to touch on, too, which I, I find very obnoxious with regards specifically to Teslas. Uh, you know, these things are energy hogs. They are gratuitously wasteful. You'll note uh, that they're marketed and sold on the basis of things like how quickly they go, right? Ooh, look, I can get to 60 in 2.9 seconds. And yeah, that's, that's tremendous. It's also tremendously wasteful. In order to be able to do that, the electric car has to have a battery that's probably twice the size as would be necessary for a basic transportation car to get you from A to B. And that is going to require twice as much in the way of rare earth materials, raw materials, all the manufacturing processes that go into it. And then God knows how much more electricity that has to be provided and produced somewhere to feed that thing. And yet they have the effrontery to put these things out there as some kind of responsible choice to make. You know, it's, it's, it's incredibly offensive to me. 
No, and and it should be. I mean, look, I I don't begrudge anybody for for taking concern with the environment, but I'm not convinced that uh, you know our demise is rooted in fossil fuels. I think that uh, we've we've come a long way, you know, from from leaded gasoline and you know you know smoky diesels. Of course, we have, and assuming for the sake of discussion that uh, climate change. Uh, is a dangerous thing, and it's being principally caused by things like motor vehicles, then pray tell me how it is that we're helping that along by increasing the demand on a grid that is largely powered by coal, natural gas, and oil, which produces a lot of carbon dioxide to generate that electricity. Yeah. Yeah, there's, I, I don't know. And the fact that politicians are pushing this, I, I maybe I'm just becoming contrary in my old age, but mm-hmm. it seems like politicians are very intent on pushing me to do things I don't really want to do. So, well, good ideas don't need force, do they? They don't. You know, if, this, if this electric car is such a grand idea, if it is superior uh, functionally, practically, economically to, um, to non-electric cars, well, then it should be able to compete on the merits. But you, know, you can't ask that question because the answer, obviously, is it can't. You know, people aren't dumb. The typical person doesn't want to spend twice as much for a car that goes half as far and that is going to require him to completely reorder his life, which is what I got into in my, in my latest article about life with an EV. And I, I can speak to that because I test drive new cars, so I've actually had seat time in these things. Most people haven't, and I can tell you what it's like to live with them. Uh, most people are going to look at that and say, you know what, that's not for me. I think I'm going to go ahead and just stick with my $18,000 Corolla that will go 500 miles on a tank of gas and takes me five minutes to refill. Wow. Yeah, I think I would, I would, take, the, I would take a smaller gas-powered car over a very luxurious electric car just for the sake of reliability. But, hey, that's just well, me. You know, and even if you wanted to take it, at the end of the day, I think we touched on this once before in one of our talks, uh, it's nice to like something. It's nice to think something is cool. I think battleships are cool. Uh, I think personal jets are cool. The problem is I can't afford either of those things. I can look, but I can't touch. And for most people, that's the case with electric cars. Most average people cannot afford to spend $40,000, $50,000 on a car, whether it's electric or not. Here, here. Eric, we got just a couple minutes left. Let's. Uh, I, w- I want to just kind of get your prognostication or maybe uh, what advice would you have for our listeners going into the the coming year. 2022 looks like it has some pretty significant challenges Mm -hmm. coming along with it. Any thoughts uh, that you'd like people to take away from our conversation? Yeah, hang tight. Uh, And that's on a variety of fronts. Hang tight with regard to the jab. Uh, If you haven't been jabbed so far, resist taking it. Uh, The thing could all fall apart very soon. And even if you're worried about your employer demanding that you do this, it's possible, and I hope, fingers crossed, that this case that's before the Supreme Court will be decided in our favor, and uh, the, the power asserted by Biden to unilaterally decree that everybody must be jabbed who works for a company that has 100 or more employees will fall apart. Hold on to your older vehicle if you have it. You may be very grateful that you do if you do that. And also, as always, take steps to insulate yourself and your family from what may be coming in terms of things like saving up a little bit of food, making sure you can provide for yourself, thinking about what you can do in your own local community, and trying to connect from this centralized control grid. Yes. In fact, I, I want to hearken back to something you and I talked about actually some time ago, and that is connecting with like-minded individuals. Mm-hmm. We've had a pretty good opportunity over the last 21 months or so to suss out who uh, who will go along and who will stand up you know, for principle. 
So absolutely, make, it's make a good choice. Important. It's important for uh, our economic health, but it's even more important, I think, for our psychological health in order to prevent from prevent uh, them from demoralizing us. To know you're not alone. Uh, to have the backup of people who are not cheap, as, you, as, your, as your bumper puts it. Yep. Eric, tell everybody where they can find your website. Sure. It's epautos.com, uh, the web's best libertarian gearhead site. I'm pretty easy to find. Okay. He's, he's really got a wealth of information there. Anything automotive, you're thinking about buying a car or looking at a particular car, I would say go to Eric first and see what he has to say. You'll find some very useful stuff. Eric, have a happy new year. It'll be 2022 when we talk again. Yeah, we're going to have a lot to talk about, I think. All right. Stay the course, and I look forward to seeing you in the new year. Thanks, Brian. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to thank you for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. I know there are many places to turn for information, inspiration, and just a sense of direction. And I'm very grateful that uh, you've given me a chance to present uh, hopefully the kind of information that will add value to your life and add some uh, some depth to your perception so that uh, you know where you stand as well as what you can do to uh, to improve the world around you. Let's see. Here's a great article that I was I've been dying to share this one for a day or two. Uh when, when it comes down to, to the divisions in our country, I mean, look, there's there's no shortage of players out there on the field ready to go rumble in the streets. Sadly, that's uh, that's a pretty good chunk of people. However, if you really want to break it down, it, it's very clear that a lot of the official uh, pressure and conflict that's coming our way seems to be rooted in the idea that there are people like me who simply want to be left alone. I don't go around enforcing my point of view on other people. I don't want it to be enforced on me by other people. And there are others who feel like, no, it's our prerogative to to tell you what to do and to force you to do it and take away everything good in your life until you do what's good for you. And that is simply intolerable for those who understand their, their sovereignty as an individual, as a creation of God, and do not wish to be another person's object to be ordered around or moved around at that other person's pleasure. Got a great article here from J.D. Tusseel. This is from Reason.com. It says, America's divisions may have passed the tipping point. Now, I don't share this with you to, to get you scared or to get you angry. But you need to understand that uh, if we can't learn to leave each other alone, we could see our country have a violent Meltdown. How do we know this? Well, it just so happens that we've seen very similar patterns in other countries. And there are people whose job is to study other countries. And how stable are they? And how close are they to a tipping point where they, you know, may plunge into some kind of violent revolution? And the news that they have is not very encouraging. So it's the sort of thing we would want to know about if it were coming our way, not because we're, you know, going to want to gear up and be the combatants necessarily. It's just 
a matter of understanding what's coming our way so that we can prepare ourselves as best we can for that likelihood. Maybe it's not much of a stretch for some people, but I know for for others, this is like, whoa, I do not want to hear this. I don't blame them. I don't blame them a bit. This is this is pretty tough news. J.D. Tuseal says, have America's much discussed political tensions reached a point of no return? Hmm, good question. He says political tribalists who sort their lives along partisan lines and despise opponents have become regular features of national life. But now researchers say polarization can reach a tipping point at which external threats like pandemics no longer drive people together, but instead become sources of strife that spiral out of control. And their warning comes as Americans seem poised to further escalate disagreements into open violence. So here's what some of these experts had to say. Bolislaw Szymanski of the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute told Cornell University interviewers, We see this very disturbing pattern in which a shock brings people a little bit closer together initially. But if polarization is too extreme, eventually the effects of a shared fate are swamped by the existing divisions, and people become divided even on the shock issue. Szymanski is the co-author of Polarization and Tipping Points, published recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Now, he also said, if we reach that point, we cannot unite, even in the face of war, climate change, pandemics, or other challenges, to the survival of our society. Now, apparently, the authors of the paper wanted to know why the COVID-19 pandemic, rather than pushing Americans to cooperate on a common threat, instead became yet another reason for disagreement. So they created a model to study the effects of party identity and political intolerance. Now, according to Cornell's Michael Macy, who led the study, study rather, we found that polarization increases incrementally only up to a point. But above this point, there's a sudden change in the very fabric of the institution, kind of like the change from water to steam when the temperature exceeds the boiling point. The result, according to the study, is a hard-to-predict critical point beyond which the polarization becomes unlikely to reverse. That's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit daunting to consider, isn't it? Especially, I like the reference of changing water to steam. You know what it is that makes the difference? One degree, (laughs) just one degree from 211 to 212 degrees Fahrenheit. Boom. Steam can move locomotives. So this is pretty powerful stuff. Now, J.D. Tuseal says, look, models aren't real life, of course, but these researchers were inspired by real-life developments. In fact, developments so concerning that the issue of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, in which the paper was published, was devoted to the dynamics of political polarization. After all, we live in a country in which people sort lifestyles, recreational preferences, and careers by political affiliation. Now, the University of Michigan's Scott Page, in the same publication, said, Consider also the growing segregation in our places of work. The academy increasingly skews to the left, especially so in liberal arts departments and among staff. Cattle ranchers, loggers, dentists, and surgeons skew right. Such political sorting also applies to the military, too, severely limiting its utility in the country's domestic disputes. No matter that some office holders think that B-52s are the solution to political agreements, disagreements. rather, Just two weeks ago, three anti-Trump retired Army generals warned that Americans shouldn't look to troops to suppress escalating political strife. 
Paul Eaton, Antonio Taguba, and Stephen Anderson wrote in the Washington Post the potential for a total breakdown of the chain of command along partisan lines from the top of the chain to squad level is significant should another <clears throat> insurrection occur. Under such a scenario, it's, out, it's not outlandish to say a military breakdown could lead to a civil war. Now, J.D. Tassil says civil war sounds like an unlikely fate for an established democracy where the population's image of the concept is tied up in images of field armies in blue and gray uniforms. But no country is any more stable than the moment allows. And internal conflict can, conflicts can be far messier than even the war that marked the mid-19th century. Professor Barbara Walter of the University of California at San Diego told CNN last week, we actually know now that the two best predictors of whether violence is likely to happen are whether a country is an anocracy, that's a fancy term for a partial democracy, and whether ethnic entrepreneurs have emerged in a country that are using racial, religious, or ethnic divisions to try to gain political power. And the amazing thing about the United States, she says, is that both of these factors currently exist. And they've emerged at a surprisingly fast rate. Now, Walter serves on the CIA's Political Instability Task Force, which assesses the health of countries around the world. I would have thought that maybe it would be causing a lot of that instability, but hey, what do I know? The task force isn't allowed to turn its gaze on its home country, but Walter did so on her own. In fact, she has a book coming out in January. The United States, she says, is pretty close to being at high risk of civil war. Now, that said, and on a more positive note, just as the stability of a country isn't written in stone, neither is its descent into chaos. And the authors of Polarization and Tipping Points emphasize that they make no claims about the model's predictive accuracy. Now, likewise, retired anti-Trump generals Eaton, Taguba, and Anderson, as well as Walter, can't know what is to come, so they can only point to warning signs that have them concerned. We don't have to live up to the worst expectations. Tosiel says, while America's dominant political factions seem determined, like two kids in the back of a car, to poke and prod each other till they come to blows, the solution, as in that road trip to hell, might be to separate the parties without allowing either one the upper hand. So both the thuggish nationalism of Republicans and the elitist presumption of Democrats are authoritarian prescriptions best reserved for two true believers, with the rest of us left to run our lives as we please. He says, if we're smart, the U.S. isn't going to be a test case for the hypothesis that uh, maybe uh, there's there's a meltdown like a like a like a nuclear reactor going critical. A runaway reaction that can't be stopped, something very simpler, similar, similar rather can happen in a political reactor. But as Tusil says, maybe uh, if we're smart, we don't have to do that, assuming that Americans can learn to leave each other alone we won't have to discover what it means to pass a national point of no return. So two quick lessons I draw from this. Number one is, if you're the kind of person who tends to, to struggle with that ability to leave other people alone, that might be a skill worth working on in the new year. We're all trying to, to improve, right? We all want to be a better version of ourselves tomorrow than we were today. So let's, uh, let's make that a, a point of focus. The second thing is, if you believed that reasonably there could be that kind of division or conflict. What are some of the common sense steps you would take to mitigate the risks to yourself and to your family? Finding some place where there's not a great deal of uh, political strife, you know, just in everyday life, 
like you find in many population centers, I think getting to a safer environment would be one of my top priorities. How about you? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here for lifesavingfood.com. Yep, we're talking food storage. You probably already have some. I'm guessing that uh, a person who would be drawn to this particular program and its message would likely have, you know, pretty warm feelings towards food storage. Here's my point, though. If you have gaps in your food storage, or for that matter, if you're somebody who's just, you know, starting to get your eyes open and going, okay, these are things I want to take care of. This is part of my preparedness plan. This is as good a time to start as ever. You're not going to see lower prices than you will see right now. The supply is plentiful right now. And it's readily available through my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. Please click the link that you'll find in the, in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. They will swing you a 15% discount, as well as no sales tax and free delivery. Pretty good incentive to uh, do something that actually makes a lot of sense. So if you've ever taken pleasure in seeing another person suffer because of their political beliefs, I want to warn you that you are on a slippery slope. And yes, I've been there myself. And it's, it's, it's that tribalistic instinct that, that just causes people to lose their minds over politics to where it shades every decision they make. Well, I'd watch that movie, but it has so-and-so, and he's a far-out lib, and I can't watch that. And, you know, I, I see people make these kinds of decisions all the time and proclaim, you know, their, their fealty to their particular tribe online. And it's, it's a little bit sad. Because that politics poisons everything. And, and you also need to remember that authoritarianism is fueled by the viciousness of tribalism. And that's what I want to talk about here. This is from a, a substack called uh, Boricua Gato. I believe it's the... Uh, uh, it's uh, Okay, so that's the, that's the site. Boricua, Boricua Gato, something about the cat. This is El Gato Malo. <laughs> bad catitude, but it's the viciousness of tribalism, two ugly sides of the same coin. And it starts with a quote from Aldous Huxley that says, the surest way to work up a crusade in favor of some good cause is to promise people that they will have the chance of mistreating someone, of maltreating someone, to be able to destroy with good conscience, to be able to behave badly and call your bad behavior righteous indignation. This is the height of, of psychological luxury, the most delicious of moral treats. And there's a tweet right under it that drives this point home. This is what it looks like in our time. It's an individual who says, I plan on laughing at the anti-vaxxers that are forced to eat in the rain from the comfort of inside a restaurant. So this is perfectly correct, what Huxley pointed out. And this individual is a perfect example of someone who is reveling in the idea of getting to mistreat other people. Now, the author of this blog post says, this is how you enroll willing, even gleeful ranks of vicious brown shirts, not only ready, but desperate to oppress others. That's why half of them joined up in the first place. If this were not the cause, it would be some other. The form the pretext takes is immaterial. It's the chance to do wrong and call it righteous that attracts. 
That's pretty chilling. And it's easy to provide. You simply invert this base human desire to dominate and attack, often in plentiful supply in the upper reaches of the beta groups, into a civic virtue by othering and segregating outgroups. So you not only make it okay, but actually laudable to engage in the nasty, brutal actions that would otherwise be taboo. You don't need to run around conscripting assistance to totalitarian regimes. The mawkish middle will fall all over itself in its rush to sign up as long as they get to wear a hall monitor sash and push people around. Good example of this was the lady on a flight. I don't know which airlines, but she was screaming at an elderly male passenger who wasn't wearing a mask. Not just screaming at him. She slapped him. She spit in his face twice. And she felt perfectly entitled to do so. This is what he's talking about here. Now, of course, this has a flip side as well in that all these groups must endle- <clears throat> excuse me, endlessly and ostentatiously profess group membership and loyalty at all times for fear of becoming the next target of this focused aggression. Because, of course, there must always be such a target. It is this unification to assail the other that generates group purpose and cohesion. It's the essential ethos and pathology of such assemblages. And this is why it's such an effective time and it's effective rather and time honored tool of demagogues. It draws the sort of the right kind of amoral shock troops to you and then holds them in thrall for once they transgressed, there's no getting off the tiger. It doesn't take some orchestrated conspiracy to get them all singing from the exact same hymnal and to keep them marching in lockstep. It's just emergent behavior from the same base fear of being shunned and attacked if they falter. And once they cross the line into calling oppression honorable, they are yours. Now, you may think this uh, must be some set of talking points or botnet, and it's it's a list of tweets saying, well, like so many of my fellow New Yorkers, I've tested positive for COVID. My symptoms are mild. Since I thankfully have been vaxxed and boosted, I'm confident I will be fine. I'm grateful to everyone who's made that extraordinary thing possible. Be safe out there. And it's a it's a whole bunch of people. Mark Levine, um, Elizabeth Warren, Representative Jason Crow, other other leaders. But they're all proclaiming, look, they're fealty of uh, look, look, I am not unclean. And this is this is the terror of being deemed unclean, manifesting in performative social prostration for the greatest fear of the brown shirt is always their fellow brown shirts. I am not deplorable. I did everything right. I am still one of you. Do not turn the baleful eye of your righteous anger upon me. That is what deep, atavistic social fear looks like. In fact, even the high status fear the tribe turning on them because they know just how mean-spirited and ruthless it can be. They feel it in their own wants and drives. They know what they would do to you if you turned apostate, and the prospect of it being done to them terrifies This is the essence of the nature of the bully. The weakest and the worst among them actually need to believe this so that they can convince themselves they're not dirty, dirty rather, and worthy of contempt. And they've so internalized the having COVID is to be filthy and fallen narrative that they cannot bear it even in themselves and they need to rationalize and prove that they're still okay. The illness and neuroses have reached the point where many of the faithful are in desperate need of reassurance. So stop and ponder the fact that an article like this was required to be written. 
What does the underlying pathology of this group look like? What does it look like to engender this kind of need? This is from the HuffPost. The title, Getting COVID Isn't a Shameful Moral Failure. If you're vaccinated and responsible but got a breakthrough infection thanks to the Omicron variant, this is for you. See, this tribe is in the throes of tearing itself apart both internally and externally. And the simple fact is this. In the U.S. anyway, they already lost. It's over. Half the country said no to biotyranny. More of the center are joining them every day. The vaccine will, vaccines will save us narrative is in tatters. And Omicron is mild for the vaxxed and unvaxxed alike. The facts are too plain. The comparisons are too stark. And the attempts at suppression have been too blatant. Here's a good example. Ex-FDA chief warns hidden infections among vaccinated causing vast underestimate of COVID spread. Followed by the headline, Twitter to penalize users who claim vaccinated people can spread COVID-19. Whoops. (laughs) Got to stay on top of that narrative, right? This thing is breaking brains, says the article. The surpassing vitriol and mean girl savagery is the defense mechanism of a worldview eating itself. It's going to be nasty and brutish. Mercifully, it's also going to be short. But this is a strategy that either must win completely and cow everyone or will wind up alienating the whole right-thinking middle. And it can't win. Too many have already stood up, so it's all self-defeating now. This is the last barrage of cruel tantrum and pitiless derangement of reason before it all falls apart. It's all out in the open now. America does not want a new and enduring regime of institutional prejudice in the form of new Jim COVID laws. Do not fear this remorseless, inhuman assault. It does not come from a place of strength, but rather demonstrates just how weak their cause has become. They are freaking out because they can feel the end coming, and the reckoning after such excess is unkind, and they will face it, not just from those they tried to conquer, but from one another as well. And they fear each other even more than they fear us. The locales and leaders that push and implement on the push and implement this will not get to keep the ground they just grabbed. This is the hill they die on. Now the author says, I have a feeling that this is the fight we're going to be in now. Teen panic congealed into a set of vicious tribal norms that function like a fundamentalist evangelical sect. And now, even as they see the evidence for their worldview collapsing, they cannot climb down because to do that would make them the new target of all the righteous rage boiling over from not just losing, but also from having been tricked. They're stuck in a loop of tribal self-immolation. It looks fearsome, but it's not. This is where we win. It's time to push. It's time to resist. It is time to disobey. I find this very inspiring. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the show. Yeah, this show exists because there is a battle on for your mind, and in fact, a moment of decision approaches. Now, that doesn't mean you either decide that you're with me or you're against me. 
I think it's more of a decision of will you stand up for yourself or will you become essentially a, a piece of cattle to someone else to be ordered about an object that they will move and do with as they please, and your job is to shut up and obey. I know, it's not much of a fun decision, but uh, I'm here to provide you with the, the needed intellectual, moral, and, and hopefully a spiritual backbone to, to stand up for yourself, to assert your God-given rights. And that uh, is kind of hard. You'll notice a lot of pressure is being brought to bear from many different areas, but uh, I assure you, we are up to it. We are up to the challenge and it's, it's important that we do this, not just for our own well-being, not just for securing our own freedoms, but for the sake of every individual who will follow in our footsteps, our kids, our grandkids, and even their kids. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible on a day-to-day basis. I hope you'll check them out. They are listed in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you need what they are offering in terms of their product or service, I would encourage you, please do business with them. If you don't, feel free to drop them a note. Tell them thanks for sponsoring the show. They include GovernYourIncome.com, Sewing at Quilting Center, also HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. In the last hour of the show, I was sharing a, a blog post from uh, Boricua Gato. It's a substack uh, that I'm, I'm going to subscribe to because I think the insights here are just great. But it's a great piece about the viciousness of tribalism and how the people who are determined to control other people know that they are losing. And this is why they're they're very desperate to show, look, I'm good. I got vaccinated. I did everything. I wear two masks. You know, I'm a good person. But enough people have said no to biomedical tyranny that they're not going to get their way. So it could either, it could become dangerous. There could there could be you know some incredibly strong push now to try to bring people into compliance, like we've seen in Australia, New Zealand, Germany, Austria, and so forth, where you know police will beat you for being out in public without a mask. But the bottom line is, it's the time right now to peacefully, but implacably say no. And to. Uh, Take down the incipient authoritarians who so badly overreached and who so direly misjudged us in our tolerance for them. Now, when someone tells you, you know, that what you need to do is you need to follow the science or you need to uh, follow what the experts are telling you, very often what they're really doing is they're saying, shut up and do what I'm telling you. That's just a more polite way of doing it. Follow the science. Shut up. That's the same thing. Each one of us has a responsibility, though, to be our own fact checker. And Joaquin Book has a new article out that uh, explains that the only question that matters is, is it correct? Here's what Joaquin Book has to say. He says, I recently had a conversation about scientific claims in a field I don't master. We all find ourselves there once in a while. Whenever we speak outside of fields we know fairly well, the confidence with which we hold our convictions must drop. Because I don't have much training in said disciplines, I haven't thoroughly investigated the claims offered and nuances they imply, and I might very well be overlooking something. So I can't, by virtue of not having researched it much, have a clear view of the field at large, and therefore won't be able to situate whatever claim we're discussing in its wider scientific distributions. But he says, still, none of these drawbacks prevent a thoughtful person from having an opinion or an inkling as to what may or may not be accurate. 
We can still be skeptical. We can argue, argue over mechanisms and the interpretation of evidence or delay inquiry for another time. But we must accept that when we are in foreign terrain, we might just be plain wrong. A large dose of humility is required. He says, per standard Bayesian thinking, my priors are held with very little evidence, and so new information should weigh heavily in my judgment. What was so odd in this recent conversation was how my sparring partner immediately pulled rank on me and proceeded to instruct me in the three things that she looked for when assessing evidence presented. Number one, the reputation of the journal in which the reference study was published. Number two, where the funding for the particular research came from and for whom the researcher worked. Number three, whether the result was the consensus of the field. Now, to an initial observer, that sounds prudent. More reputable journals may place higher demands on the quality of research that it prints. A funding may sway people, consciously or not, and consensus should count for something. But actually, he says, none of those claims are true. Prestigious journals are fraught with office politics, citation circles, and a surprising amount of navel-gazing. And consensus, while cozy and comfortable, is always and everywhere the wrong metric. In fact, sometimes it's flat-out wrong, as it was on evolution, on relativity, on plate tectonics, and on the 1980s AIDS epidemic. Science is not established by a show of hands. Many fringe ideas may very well be wrong, but like Heather Haying and Brett Weinstein say in defense of the intellectual outcast, it's exactly from the fringe that progress is made. To quote the late Swedish economist Asar Lindbeck, if you are never controversial, you've probably never said anything genuinely new or interesting. Joaquin Book says, several years ago, a friend at a highly prestigious university explained to me how she treated information that was due to her. First, she looked for the author of the argument on Wikipedia, finding out biological information about sex, ethnicity, and where they had grown up. Second, she googled any conflicts of interest and accusations of biased funding. If she found any, she would read those first before she read anything by the author in question. How the former set of information upgraded the latter was never quite clear. What of the accuser of bias? And who fact-checks the fact-checkers? Now, what's so odd about these two checklists is that none of their contents matter. From the point of view of scientific inquiry, it doesn't matter if the author of an article is male or female, black or Hispanic, grew up wealthy in the West or poor in the South or vice versa, or has a high H index. The point of the scientific scientific method, as developed since Bacon or Hume, the Royal Society and the Republic of Letters, is that evidence prevails. Assessment of what is and whether those claims hold up against real-world evidence rules, not whether the person uttering them has financial incentives one way or another, has a particular personal history that informs their position. Doesn't it take you hours to even open a book or download a paper, I remember asking my demographically obsessed friend? Seriously, following her routine would quickly derail any research agenda. Yes, she said, before she complained loudly about the time it took her to do her research. Well, no wonder. This controversy over funding, money, and credentials has emerged again and again in these uh, two pandemic years. AIER has seen its fair share of such arguments following the Great Barrington Declaration, as reflected on by Phil Magnus and James Harrigan on its anniversary. It's much easier to demonize an opponent by accusing them of being on the payroll of dark money than it is to engage their arguments on a substantive and scientific evidentiary basis. So to invoke money is to pull attention away from what matters. 
It's lazy armchair theorizing that turns the topics into what is at best a meta-conversation about how funding structures are in industry and academia may tilt the research being done or selected for. He says, I've argued in the past that if we find even a sliver of funding connection to some despicable source, we don't need to engage with whatever the researcher is saying or investigate the scientific backing of his or her claims. We can reject them without all of that and take the rest of the afternoon off. The scientist is clearly a dupe, bought and paid for, a quack, and must surely have faked his or her entire research agenda. He says, last month, Ashley Rinsberg's great piece in Tablet Magazine on the lab leak hypothesis illustrated the same point. That first wave of objections against what was then a fringe idea that invoked racism and anti-Chinese hostilities for what sounded like an unbelievable claim, you know, that the virus came from a lab in China. Well, he says, perhaps, but why didn't we investigate and debunk the claim instead of throwing politicized mud at each other? And the counter-arguments, now that more evidence is pointing toward the leakage story is that corrupt American news media was held financially hostage to a CCP-owned, CCP-dependent corporate press. Maybe. But he says that only explains some of their behavior, yet it does nothing to rectify the only question that matters. Is it or is it not correct? Ooh, now we're getting to the meat of the matter. Unfortunately, I've got to tap the brakes here because we are coming up fast on our own commercial break. I hope you check this out. I've got a link to this article by Joaquin Book. It's published by the American Institute for Economic Research, and you can find it in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. When you go to my website, hit the subscribe button. I'll email a copy of those show notes to you each day that I do the show. Something you can look at in your own time. I promise you these articles are a treasure trove of information. And it would be worth your time if you're one of those people who's serious about, you know, doing their own dot connecting. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Thank you once again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. And thank you to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage for being one of our fabulous sponsors. You know, you'll hear me talk a little bit about my sponsors. I try not to spend all of my time, you know, away from content and just bragging on the sponsors. But these are the folks who make it possible for me to do what I do. They are the ones who keep the wolf away from my front doorstep so that I can focus on researching and finding and then sharing with you the best information that I can find. I find great purpose in doing this, and I'm very thankful to them. The Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has been one of my foundational sponsors from the very beginning. And they are there to help you if you're one of the thousands of people relocating to the Intermountain West, particularly to the great state of Utah, from VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages. You need to get in touch with the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George. They're at 619 South Bluff Street. Her phone number is 435-703-4522. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. And yes, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. So what do you think about, uh, in the last segment, that uh, article by Joaquin Book, the only question that matters, is it or is it not correct? 
just to finish, just a quick follow-up on this to finish up. He says, while financing of science or in pharma, in politics, in climate science, and now media and all things COVID, was always kind of a quick and easy card to play in arguments. It was never the first and only step in an argument. At best, it uh, raises some red flags to investigate. Extreme politicization and one-sided funding may twist what looks like consensus in a field and conceal the valid objections that the field otherwise would contain. Now, that's fair enough as a starting point, but he says, I always invoked Ludwig von Mises' steel-manning position in questions like these. So what, said the greatest economist of the 20th century, much more eloquently than I even could. Even if the other was corrupt, disingenuous, bought and paid for, you would still have to prove the counter-argument with logic and evidence available. So let's grant that your opponent was biased, writes Mises, convincingly in theory and history and interpretation of social and economic evolution. But then we must realize that his alleged bias produced theorems which successfully withstood all objections. Then is he even biased? So to overthrow an argument or evidence with or a consensus, we must still show that said argument is wrong, regardless of the motives that fueled its proponents. By constantly invoking funding or peddling money as a potential reason for scientific outcomes or political beliefs, we denigrate the intellectual capacity of one another. We pretend that, cheaply, everyone's for sale and anyone's morals, scientific or political, are available to the highest bidder. And if that's the case, we have much bigger problems than unbalanced funding for politically convenient topics. Okay, it's a good point. He says, we fool ourselves that our arguments follow ethnic, sex, or demographic lines in what amounts to a wholly unscientific collapse into untethered subjectivity. By concerning ourselves with financial or structural bias, we chip away at the idea of objective reality. There is no reality but the one that a payroll or demographically predetermined story demands. And he says, if that's the case, then I wonder why we would bother conversing at all. I really like this guy's thinking. Strongly recommend. You ought to, you ought to see what he has to say on, on many different subjects. All right, shifting gears. If you have ever been labeled unfairly, then you know the pain that it brings is real. Now, Paul Rosenberg makes a clear distinction between fixed traits and fate to remind us that losing is not the same thing as being a loser. He says, One important lesson to be learned during childhood and early adolescence is that our traits are plastic, not fixed. And he says, I know those are unusual terms, but you'll easily recognize what I mean by them with this example. Several kids are playing a game, and there's some interpersonal tension involved. Instead of just trying to win the game, one or more of them are trying to prove another one inferior. Once the game is won... The losing team or a member thereof is loudly branded a loser. Now he says, for now, we'll ignore some of the driving forces of this bad behavior. And we'll also bypass the fact that this is a very boy example and that girls can be equally bad in other ways. He says, what I want to focus on here is the trick of turning a verb into a category, which goes like this. To lose is a verb reflecting a specific set of events, events that might come out differently next time. To be a loser is to be a thing, to be frozen within a category. This is not changeable. See the difference? As silly and obvious as this trick is, it deeply affects people. Not only can it be seen in adults, but its effects can last through an entire life. If we, young, confused, dejected, start to wonder if it's true, and if we encounter a wider world that goes along with the assumption it rests upon, 
Some of us are winners and some of us are losers. This trick can cause immense damage. So he says we need to take the fangs out of winning and losing. Now, bear in mind, that's not the same thing as saying we should change all our games so no one wins or loses. He's saying we need to create clear and rational concepts for winning and losing. Humans are very sensitive to dominance events like winning. It's an area of gaping vulnerability for us, so we need to handle this properly, and we seldom have. First thing he points out is that winning is a fun thing, but it isn't a big thing. Games conducted well help children develop complex skills and teach them to strive. In the best cases, they teach them the price of excellence and leave them knowing that they are able to pay it. He says, I scratched down one of the great thoughts on this subject a long time ago from someone named David Weinstein. To this day, I don't know anything more about David, but his thought was a gem. The important thing about winning is knowing that you can. This is because winning in almost anything significant is hard. Even as children, none of us have the time and energy to be great at a dozen different games at the same time. Even the greatest natural athlete will never be world-class in more than a few sports simultaneously. So we're not going to win in everything. No one can do that. Any person or team worth competing against will be hard to beat. So what's important about winning is not the winning itself, but knowing that we can learn how to excel. In other words, it's excellence that matters, and excellence is merely measured in winning. Now, children can and probably should learn to win, but they won't and shouldn't win all the time. That's a damaging expectation. Modern sports rhetoric be damned. So here are a few phrases you may want to use. Winning, your game is fun, but it's not very important. If you didn't do well this time, figure out how you can do better next time. Winning might require a lot of hard work. What do you want to do, or what do you want to do that for this game? Games are supposed to be hard to win. If they're easy to win, then it's not a good game. And here are three underlying principles that Paul Rosenberg says should be instilled in children. What we do changes our future. Something can be done about almost anything. And finally, excellence comes at a cost, but we are able to pay that cost. Now, he says applying those is an art, of course, but if you hold them in mind, you'll do pretty well. Then there's the attraction of fate. He says, before we leave this subject, I think we should cover fate briefly. Being cast as a loser and having a fate are both fixed things, and they're things that can be attractive to people. Sweating and striving and still losing can be a difficult emotional blow, especially if your overall environment is cast in the dominance model. So rather than banging your head against a wall repeatedly, it's easier to settle back into some form of fate, which we tend not to call fate these days. It's too easy and acceptable to say, I'm just a fill-in-the-blank, thereby excusing yourself from striving and from even seeing. Lots of people do that and will comfort you for saying it. But by doing this, by saying this, you train your subconscious, especially your expectations, to accept that your situation cannot be changed by you and to avoid the effort and the risk required to change it. Now, bear in mind, that may be understandable in some very oppressive conditions, and we shouldn't be too quick to condemn people for choosing it. They may need it to hold their mental and emotional selves together, but still, he says, we are truly more than that. We are inherently creative and capable creatures, and it would be best if we could start seeing ourselves that way. So it's crucial for us to teach children that winning is about excellence rather than dominance and that losing is no more than a passing event. Because if the contrary model roots too deeply, it not only damages the kids, 
it can actually bring down whole civilizations. I've got a link to this in the show notes. Check it out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. As I look around today, uh, first of all, a confession for those who don't know, I've, I've taken a giant step back from politics. You will hear me mention political names once in a while, and occasionally I will talk about political events or policies. But you notice I'm not out there stumping. Hey, man, this is time to get more active. This is the time to get more involved and to run for office and whatever. Now, if you do run for office, I'm not putting you down. I'm just, I am just saying for me, I have, have crossed whatever threshold needed to be crossed to where I've stopped counting on any solution to come from the, the politics part of our lives. If anything, it seems like everything that's touched by politics turns into a power struggle. And I think that's by nature. I think that's, that is actually what politics is. It's, you know, it decides who gets to call the shots, which has somehow morphed into who gets to call the shots and punish the people who don't agree with our side. So, or with the uh, losing side, I should say. So trust for the political class, uh, at least for me, and maybe for you, is quickly disappearing. I mean, it's hard to remember a time when when uh, politicians weren't so craven in their power-seeking. So I want to take a little trip in the Wayback Machine to George Washington's farewell address. Now, if you haven't read this, the language may be a little bit shocking. And I don't mean because he was prone to using, you know, dark profanity and, you know, obscene expressions to try to get his point across. No, it's uh, because there was such character and humility and even, do I dare say it, reverence for the sacred in his writings. But here's a chance to hear some prophetic advice from a great man. This is from David Butler, written in AmericanThinker.com, American prophet, George Washington. Now he starts by saying, look, the prophets of the Bible are individuals chosen by God to speak for God. Many mentions of prophets are made in the Bible. In fact, a section of the Old Testament is devoted to a collection of books by them. The names and quotes appear all over the New Testament and are the subject of sermons to this day. What they all had in common was a heart for God, an anointing to hear from Him, and the faithfulness to impart His message to others. This is a scripture from Second Peter. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though humans, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, prophets speak loudly from the pages of the past, their words seem to take on greater meaning over time, are more relevant than ever, and provide us with insights into the past and counsel for our present and future. David Butler says, as a fan of American history, I often think of historic figures as similar to prophets of the Bible, whose lives, experiences, achievements, and words take on greater meaning over time and provide us with guidance concerning the great challenges we face today as a nation. In fact, he says, in my view, Three such American prophets are former presidents George Washington, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan, each of whom presented the American people with prophetic farewell messages that speak loudly today and, if we listen closely, 
can provide us with guidance and counsel to guide our collective future. So today we consider Washington. After forming and leading the Continental Army in the War for Independence, George Washington, known for generations as the father of our country, was the unanimous selection as our nation's first president after America's new constitution was ratified in 1783. Actually, I don't think that's right. It wasn't written until 1787. So uh, we're talking, what, 1791, I believe, or 1790. Now I've got to get my dates sorted out here. But uh, anyway, Washington's farewell remarks were intended to provide the public and his peers with the knowledge he would not be seeking a third term of office. His voluntary departure from office helped discourage the notion of an American monarchy and established the tradition of American presidents serving no more than two terms, which was later established in the 22nd Amendment of, uh, of 1947. So here's a sample of what Washington said. Quote, Here perhaps I ought to stop, but a solicitude for your welfare, which cannot end but with my life, and the apprehension of danger, natural to that solicitude, urge me on, on an occasion like the present, to offer to your solemn contemplation and to recommend to your frequent review some sentiments which are the result of much reflection, of no no inconsiderable observation, and which appear to me all important to the permanency of your felicity as a people. These will be offered to you with the more freedom as you can only see in them the disinterested warnings of a parting friend." who can possibly have no personal motive to bias his counsel. Now, granted, he's got a fancy way of saying things, but David Butler says, see what I mean? What I like about the paragraph above is that he positions his remarks as the honest reflections of an old friend informed by experience, which he hopes will be considered by his fellow Americans. Later in his remarks, Washington counsels the American people to prioritize national unity, And whether someone was born here or arrived as an immigrant, we must consider ourselves Americans first over and above any other differences. This is from George Washington, quote, Citizens by birth or choice of a common country, that country has a right to concentrate your affections. The name of American, which belongs to you in your national capacity, must always exalt the just pride of patriotism more than any appellation derived from local discriminations. Now, Butler says Washington also warns us against factions, divisions within the body politic that will most certainly be exploited by those seeking to gain power and control the government at the expense of the people. Quote, Associations of the above description may now and then answer popular ends. They are likely in the course of time and things to become potent engines which by cunning, ambitious, and unprincipled men will be enabled to subvert the power of the people and to usurp for themselves the reins of government, destroying afterward the very engines which have lifted them to unjust dominion. Holy cow, do you want to let that one sink in for just a second? Does that ring true when it defines the political class of today? By the way, he further warns that such divisions can lead to animosity, violence, and foreign influence. Again, Washington, quote, It agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, foments occasionally riots and insurrection. It opens the door to foreign influence and corruption, which finds a facilitated access to the government itself 
through the channels of party passions. Gee, Eric Swalwell, that Chinese spy that you were sleeping with, I wonder if that, you know, in any way might resemble Washington's remark here. Okay. David Butler says, Washington also encourages his fellow citizens to be faithful to the Constitution and warns that violations or impromptu changes might be considered advantageous in the short term, but in the long run, undermines free government. Here's Washington, quote, If in the opinion of the people the distribution or modification of the constitutional powers be in any particular wrong, let it be corrected by an amendment in the way which the Constitution designates. But let there, let there be no change by usurpation. For though this, in one instance, may be the instrument of good, it is the customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. I would ask you just to consider the president's uh, vaccination mandates of late. Just just for a quick, easy example of what usurpation looks like. It's the assumption and claim of power that was never rightly delegated to an individual or to an office. Also, Washington talks about faith in God and in providence, the guiding hand that inspired and shaped his career and the birth of a new nation, provided Washington constant courage and inspiration. It was his belief, and the belief of most of his compatriots, that an abiding faith in the Almighty and a foundation of individual and collective morality was essential for the continued success of the new nation. So again, here's George Washington's words. Of all the dispositions and habits which lead to political prosperity, religion and morality are indispensable supports. Whatever may be conceded to the influence of refined education on the minds of peculiar on minds of peculiar structure, reason and experience both forbid us to expect that national morality can prevail in exclusion of religious principle. Now look, you may not be a religious person yourself, and that in no way is, you know, a bad reflection on you. But if you want to teach morality, to large numbers of people, religion is the most effective we- most weapon. Sorry, tool. <laughs> it's been weaponized by some, but it's the most effective means by of getting that message to people over you know a very large number of, of folks. Washington was right. There's so much more to this story, and I'm just going to leave you with that. I hope you'll examine it on your own and explore more of what he had to say. I don't disagree with David Butler. I think uh, Washington was prophetic in a lot of the stuff that he said, particularly in that farewell address. I hope he does follow-ups on uh, Dwight Eisenhower and Ronald Reagan as well. I'd like to uh, hear their slant and, and see where they were prophetic. I don't doubt that there were some things they said that were. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. You know, I know we're not supposed to take pride in being an American today, right? That would be too much like privilege, which I guess is, is, is racist in, in the minds of some. At the same time, people who know and live the principles and practices of freedom, people who are aware of just how blessed we have been, can't help but feel, uh, 
I don't know, a, a sense of gratitude for the circumstances they find themselves in. I know the situation isn't perfect, but I often find myself reflecting that, uh, man, it could be so much worse. I have a daughter who's living in Germany right now. And, you know, there, there's, I, I was in Germany two years ago. I actually went there for Christmas and it was, it was a remarkable experience that I, I get pretty, you know, excited over, you know, reading things that, uh, individuals wrote 200 plus years ago that still have great relevance today, right? That's, that's neat. It's fun to, to see the, the pioneer heritage of the people who came out West and, and, you know, tamed the desert and turned it into something, you know, amazing. The architecture, the, the canals that they built, the irrigation systems, just totally amazing. So you can imagine how I would geek out walking around and admiring the workmanship of a 700 year old castle in Germany. But I feel for my daughter right now. She doesn't complain. She doesn't, you know, she's she's just living life. But the demands that the government puts on her and puts on others and, and has been doing, you know, in the name of, you know, fighting COVID, it's really scary. It's like, you know, 80-some years ago, we've forgotten the lessons of what happens when you start uh, segregating people into the desirables and the undesirables in society. And these have no rights, but everybody else is good. Very scary stuff. I've got an article here from Jeffrey M. Vaughn, and it's on American citizenship and how we're often caught between creed and clan. Now, this is a pretty lengthy article, but I'm going to share a couple of excerpts, and I'm going to commend this to your examination so that you can make your own decisions on it. The subtitle here says, The fact is one cannot simply make oneself an American. To some extent or another, through birth or naturalization, one becomes an American because someone else did the work. Listen to what he has to say here. Jeffrey M. Vaughn says, Our politics is currently overwhelmed with identity. Rights, votes, participation, all understanding of one's place in the country is said to be based on one's identity. But the one identity that people shy away from is that of the American citizen. Who precisely is this person? Well, the American Constitution speaks in the voice of we the people, but never defines who that people might be, even if they already existed in 1787, even before the establishment of a more perfect union. Who are these Americans? Who as an individual is an American? On the one hand, he says, this is a simple question to answer. There's a legal definition of citizenship based on birth or naturalization. Some people simply are Americans and others are not. It's simply a matter of paperwork. But on the other hand, it's not so easy to answer as we can see from the history of this country. Whether someone is a citizen and how that might be defined has been the source of most contentious, the most contentious controversies. For instance, Dred Scott appealed to his status as a citizen of Missouri to argue for his freedom from slavery. Supreme Court Justice Roger Taney, in his infamous decision, denied the possibility of citizenship to Scott and all those whose descendants were forcibly brought into this country, a denial Abraham Lincoln would ferociously challenge. The Civil War resolved this question in favor of Dred Scott, who died before it started. Yet the problem of what citizenship entails continued. American women were not universally permitted to vote until the passage of the 19th Amendment in 1920. 
and the question of the civil rights of former slaves and their descendants came to a head a full century after the Civil War. The legal citizenship of neither group was contested. American women, for instance, were American citizens, but they were citizens who could not vote in most states and most often were not even issued their own passports when traveling. What makes someone a citizen? Well, he says two competing answers to that question have been offered since the beginning of the American Republic. In the first of the Federalist Papers, Alexander Hamilton proposed that the opportunity before the people of the various states was to decide the important question whether societies of men are really capable or not of establishing good government from reflection and choice, or whether they are forever destined to depend for their political constitutions on accident and force. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, the great English author of the early 20th century, America is the only nation in the world that is founded on a creed. America, Chesterton thought, was a nation with the soul of a church. Now, John Jay in Federalist II offered a competing idea, which we might describe as America as a clan. He attributed to divine providence the creation of a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government. Very similar in their manners and customs, and who, by their joint counsels, arms and efforts, fighting side by side throughout a long and bloody war, have nobly established general liberty and independence. From this perspective, Americans are a people because of their common history. Now, the notion that Americans form something like a clan is there in Jay's contribution to the Federalist Papers, and it forms the central idea of Justice Taney's decision, although most slaves by Dred Scott's time had been born here too because of the constitutional ban on importation. So the most compelling argument that America is a clan is that most Americans were born that way. Despite falling birth rates, Americans make more Americans than anyone else does. This is one job that has not been sent offshore. For the vast majority of the population of the country, citizenship is the result of birth and nothing else. It's almost as if the country were an extended family. Yes, it has branches, but being born to citizenship binds people to one another. Now, one of the finest reflections on this idea of an inherited place in the country can be found in Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? Douglass began his remarks with praise for the leaders of the American Revolution, but carefully called them your fathers as he spoke to the white audience. He referred to himself and his listeners as fellow citizens, however. A different paternity did not cut him off from citizenship, but it gave Douglass, a former slave, a different lineage. Now, Douglass' central charge against America was its hypocrisy. You glory in your refinement and your universal education, yet you maintain a system as barbarous and dreadful as ever strained the character of a nation. On the 4th, Americans were celebrating a rebellion inspired by a three-penny tax on tea, and yet wring the last hard-earned farthing from the grasp of the black laborers of your country. Americans were enslaving the people they lived beside, the people who should have been and eventually would become members of their clan. So the problem with the idea of clan, the clan idea of citizenship, is that it's too exclusive, too familiar to account for the reality of the country. So Americans aren't all one happy family and even an unhappy one. At one time, or at the time John Jay wrote Federalist II, there were already deep divisions 
And there were many Americans from very different backgrounds. They weren't related. They didn't act like they were. Chesterton, Chesterton, on the other hand, thought the creed on which America was founded was equality. I mean, it says so in the Declaration of Independence. Alexis de Tocqueville thought that the love of equality was important to the country and to the whole new age of equality. He foresaw taking root everywhere. But here's the problem with the idea that a nation could be based upon an idea or a creed. And that is a creed can be accepted anywhere. Can a specific nation be defined by nothing but an aspiration to universality? And wouldn't that nation be coextensive with the world? Okay, that's a fair point. Now, it's a pretty lengthy essay, but I'm going to skip ahead here. Because he goes into the Constitution and how our government was established. And this is the conclusion that uh, Mr. Maughan comes to. He says, being an American is not simply admiring the Constitution as an idea, nor can it be reduced to choosing one's parents. He says, American identity comes from living through the political institutions of the Constitution. This should be recognized as the primary political identity of Americans and a most gratifying and humanizing one. I'd l- I would invite you, please, take a more detailed look. I would if I had more time, but the clock is not my friend today, and we are up against it at this moment. So find this article from Jeffrey M. Vaughn. It's in today's show notes, which you'll find at the com. American citizenship caught between creed and clan. Neither one of those things uh, seems utterly satisfying to me, but I do agree with his idea that there's there is a love for freedom and a love for limited government whose job is to protect your God-given rights. And I don't care what creed, clan, or family you come from, if you understand and you embrace that, I am proud to call you a fellow citizen. This is The Brian Hyde Show.